Welcome to How to Ruin Your Own Reputation, the show where I talk to people who live lives that a lot of people don't quite understand. But I think the more we listen to people's stories, the more we learn, understand, and hopefully judge a little bit less. My guest today is so unique and so interesting to me because if you were to come across her TikTok videos and had the sound off, you would never in a million years guess what this bubbly Southern belle was talking about. But Marcy Marie Simmons was a married mother of five when she was convicted of a crime and incarcerated in a Texas jail for what ended up being over a decade. Since she's been out, she's been sharing her experiences in ways that are sometimes really funny and entertaining, sometimes heartbreaking, but always, always on it. And I want to talk about all of it. We're going to jump right in. And they say, welcome, Marcy. Nice to meet you. And I'm so appreciative that you're here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here too. I I listened to several of your podcasts and I'm a fan now. So yeah. <laughs> Thanks. The, the fandom is mutual. I want to start by asking you, what did your life look like before? Like right before you made the decision to take part in something that would ultimately change your life forever. But what was your life like right before that? And then what led to what happened? My life right before that was the typical middle-class working mother, married, taking kids to baseball practice, coaching, cheerleading, PTA, school lunches, changing diapers. It was that. It was just a normal. I would not have foreshadowed that for myself. And I don't believe anyone looking from the outside would have foreshadowed my decision. And what was that decision? That decision was to start stealing money. Basically, just put it out there real raw. I took money that didn't belong to me. And um, it was through my employer. My employer was doing a little shenagling with their finances. And I took that and turned it in a way that directly benefited me, directly put money into my account that was not mine. It was just a moment of opportunity. I don't know. I wish that I could say the moment that I was like, I do remember looking, thinking, oh, that would be easy. But I don't remember exactly what was going through my mind that was like, hey, I don't know if you picture that little, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other. I feel like my angel wasn't speaking up. I don't know what happened. I have no good reason. I just saw it could be done. And I thought, I think I could do that. And I did for several years. So you saw your employers doing it first, that they were getting away with it. And you were like, oh, I could, I can do that too. Right. Well, they were manipulating their books. So it's not Mm. that they were like stealing, but I saw how they were doing that. And I took that same kind of action and changed it up. So now, the first time you did it, did you, what did you feel? Was it a high? Was it guilt? What was that feeling? Marcy, I wish that I wish that I could say, oh, I felt guilty and it was horrible or, but it was not. I didn't have much respect for my employers at that time. And I think that played into it a little bit. I felt underpaid and underappreciated. Mm. I think that played into it a bit. And so I had already told myself, I deserve more. That first transaction, definitely there was a thrill factor to that. Definitely it 
lit those endorphins inside of me and stirred up all of that. I can see that actually, because it's not the same as stealing from somebody when you see somebody and it almost is personal. This was like taken from a man, you know, taking from somebody that had a lot that you didn't really respect. I could see where that line could be crossed. And because again, like you said, you can't imagine what it's going to turn it. You didn't see the next three years the first time you did it. Absolutely not. Absolutely. In my mind, it was one thing and it was never going to turn into what it did, but it quickly escalated from that first transaction. And you said it went on for three years? Yeah, a little over, I think three and a half is what. And nobody knew? No, nobody knew. Nobody knew. No, so you didn't I don't confide in anyone. That's hard. It was horrible. It was horrible. So as thrilling as those transactions were, and I can kind of just turn this into the kind of feelings that maybe anybody in any active addiction has, because I do believe it became an addiction for me where you're shutting out everybody on the outside. So then you're feeling loneliness and guilt Mm. and you have guilt from lying to everybody that you know, and from living a life that, you know, your family would not approve of. And then you're doing these transactions and it's feeding some of those empty feelings. And it's just a cycle where you continue to build walls. It was a horrible existence. I'm very close to my family, but I withdrew from my parents, distanced myself Mm. from my brother, my husband, even my children. It affected everybody while I was doing that. Did you hide the money? Because your husband would have questioned where the extra money came from. Oh, I I wish I had hidden it. (laughs) I wish I had it (laughs) hidden somewhere. No, I just lied with every transaction. I had some kind of excuse. We got a big bonus at work or I spent a bunch on the kids and maybe he didn't notice that spending. I told him things like we would go on trips and I would say, oh, our company paid for this hotel because they have a, a contract with this and I just I manipulated it and so you can't really even begin to understand the amount of lying and manipulation that it takes to maintain that kind of lifestyle and how that just eats away at your soul it really was horrible and one lie leads to another lie leads to another lie and more cover-up and more cover-up so how did it come to an end how did you get caught I got caught because there was an ice storm and in Texas that shuts everything down. Literally, we don't know how to drive on it. Our buildings aren't set up for it. Our vehicles aren't. I could not get on Wi-Fi or I think it was even dial up then, but where I could get on the internet. And so basically what I was doing, I had to keep the money moving. And when it was stagnant during that ice storm, it threw a red flag up to the bank. So the bank contacted my employer. And it went downhill from there. So what was the first indication that the jig was out? I knew. I knew that the bank would notice that. And there was no logical reason for me to have any kind of explanation once that red flag was up. And so I felt it already. But then my boss called me and he said, hey, our big bosses are flying in. We have a meeting. And I thought, no, this is it. I knew. And I walked right into it. I knew what was going on. And were the police called immediately? I think that the detectives were actually at my employer or at my job when I went. 
I didn't see them, but I went into my office and my big boss was there alone. He was sitting in my chair with all of these papers in front of him. Mm. And I just, I knew. And at that point, it was just like, I, I felt a weight actually lift as much dread as I felt and fear for what the consequences were going to be. In the same breath, I felt a weight lifted because I was like, <sighs> okay, you know, <laughs> this is it. So he talked to me for just a few minutes and then the detectives walked in. So it's fairly sure that they were there already. Right. But Was there a feeling of relief? Because do you think you would not have been able to stop on your own had they not stopped you? I would not have been able to, Marcy. Mm. I did several times I stopped just to start right back. It was a wow. typical addiction. scenario of anybody in an active addiction. They are feeling guilt. They feel remorse. They don't want to be doing it. But once I got started, I couldn't stop. I could not stop myself. So then what was the next step? So they, did they arrest you there? How did that work? They took me to the police station. I rode with them. I wasn't in handcuffs or anything. I was not arrested yet, but they took me to question. And I just, I just spilled it. <laughs> I spilled it. <laughs> okay. I do wish that I hadn't. Not that I had, I was never going to plead not guilty or I was never going to do that, but I wish that I hadn't just laid it all out. I should have said, let me talk to an attorney. So many I should have. I think I would have gotten better deal in the, in the overall scenario, but no, I just, (laughs) I just let it all out. I just couldn't help myself. I felt relieved, a relief that somebody knew, relieved that I didn't have to hide it anymore relieved that part was over because I knew I wasn't going to go back. Even at that point, I knew, okay, it's done. Now it's done. It's not going to be a problem for me anymore. Different kind of problems, but. So from there, how did that work? Do you go home? Do you go to jail? I I have no idea what happened then. Well, they, after I confessed everything basically and told on myself. Everybody in prison was like, yeah, you ratted your own self out. But I literally did. So after that, they got talked to the DA and got an arrest warrant. And there I was in in handcuffs just moments after that. And when did you call home? I called home from the detective's office, actually. So I had small children. I had three children in middle school and two babies. And I had to make sure childcare was taken care of. So I just asked, could I call my husband? And they let me call. He assumed that I had been arrested for a traffic ticket. He just <laughs> didn't even have a clue. He didn't have a clue. So what was that phone call? How do you say, no, not quite a speeding ticket. More and that's like- exactly, I said, no, it's bad. And he oh. said, did you get in an accident? He thought maybe something right. weird happened with it. And I said, no. And then he's, what are they saying? And I said, theft over 100000 That was my first charge, theft over 100000 And he just said, oh, my God. And he had no clue? None. Zero. Wow. He, I think my arrest explained my behavior as mm. far as distancing myself. And I think he knew something, but he never dreamed. Yeah. I mean, I haven't ever talked to him about that, but I think he would have thought an affair before he thought I was stealing all of this money. and. I was going to say, if you would have said to him, name 10 things that I've been lying about, this would not <laughs> have come up Never. in one of those things. It's just not, right. not what you would expect. Okay. So they arrest you. 
And then did you have any idea of what your sentencing could be like at that point? What you were looking at? I was thinking, I thought that there was a possibility of prison time, but I would have thought under two years, I would have thought probation was an option. I had never been in trouble before. When I got to the county jail, everybody, that's a big topic in county jail. Everybody's facing charges, going to court, and everybody's the expert, right? And they're like, oh, you're going to get probation for sure. And yeah, so that was not what happened. And in fact, I was so sure that I was getting probation that I was telling my family, yeah, this is probably going to come just fine and I'm going to have to pay the money back and I'm just going to have to be, and that's how it's going to go. And then I went to my court date, my first court date. And my lawyer came in and said, the DA is offering you not probation, but 40 years. 40, 40 years, (laughs) 40 years. Okay. That's okay. That's something. Okay. So how do you, how do you even, I can't even imagine what thoughts went through your head. Yeah. That was so hard to process. I couldn't even wrap my mind around that kind of number. I feel like murderers don't get that. I feel like well, don't. horrible crimes and don't get that kind of crime. Often, often they don't. Often they don't. But yeah, so obviously I didn't sign for the 40 and I realized how this was going to go. It was not going to go probably towards probation. So in the end you got, you were sentenced to how much? Was it 20? 20. Okay. If you could share, I'm just curious, what was that conversation like talking to your husband and your kids knowing or thinking that you're going to be away for that long I can't even imagine what strength that took to have that conversation so the way that parole works in Texas is there's like a chart and if if an inmate is convicted of a nonviolent crime they're eligible for parole at this many months if they have this year's in it so at 20 years parole eligibility is at 28 months. That's what we thought. And when my lawyer had me sign for that, I signed for a 20-year sentence. And when he had me sign for that, he has his laptop there and he pulls the chart up and he's showing me, see, 28 months. And I'm like, okay, I can wrap my mind around 28 months. And he said, if you don't get in trouble, you go home. That's how it works. He didn't know how it works. Guess what? Attorneys don't know how parole works. (laughs) Oh, that's a problem. That's not how it worked. So in my mind and the way that my family thought is I would be home before my youngest daughters started kindergarten. I would be Mm -hmm. home before my oldest son graduated high school. I would miss a significant amount, but nothing. We didn't know we were getting into a 10-year journey. And that's what it was. So you ended up being there for for 10 years. So we've all watched prison shows and things like that and thought, could I do it? And I think I would last a minute. That's what I think. And, but I wonder if, because I've heard, I've watched your videos, I've heard you speak. And it's interesting how, do you think people just get kind of just acclimate to it? How long did it take you to wrap your head around? I'm st- you know what it is. I'm just, I can't even imagine what the experience was like. And so I'm trying to wrap my head around it. So d- how long did it take before you made peace with the fact, this is where I'm going to be for the next few years anyway? Let me say that, Humans have this incredible way of acclimating or surviving, or you can put us in any situation and we're going to figure out how to, and that's just part of it. But as far as 
me coming to peace with my sentence. Honestly, Marcy, in the middle of my 10-year bid, I've lost it because I just was not making parole. And I'm just starting to realize, oh, that's not how this works. I'm doing what I'm supposed to, but that doesn't mean they have to let me out. That's not how it goes. And it took me going all the way to the bottom, suicide attempt, psychiatric hospital, like a prison psychiatric hospital, which is a whole nother episode. And it took me hitting all the way down before I realized I'm either going to have to decide. I had to make a conscious decision. Am I going to survive or am I going to just lose yeah. myself completely? You just said too that you went up for parole a bunch of times and then were denied parole. Why would that happen if you're doing everything that, that you're supposed to do? Why would they deny parole? Do they tell so you? They do tell us. They do tell us the reasons. And there are reasons that have nothing to do with after your case. My reasons were significant monetary loss and repetitive criminal activity. Since mm-hmm. I had committed my crime, it was s- several transactions. Those things you can't fix from within prison. And we're actually trying to get a bill passed to change some of those. It's called the Common Sense Parole Bill. If you're in Texas, contact your legislators, <laughs> contact mm-hmm. lawmakers and tell them you are for the Common Sense Parole Bill. And it just means that the parole will be set up so that an inmate knows what they're supposed to do and what they have to do and what's expected of them. The mm. judge has already punished you for your crime and that it's set up that you make parole or you're eligible for parole at this time. So if you take your classes and do what you're supposed to do on your treatment plan, instead of giving you the same. It it seems it actually seems really cruel. It seems really cruel if they're saying that no matter what you do, once you're in there, we are going to deny it because of what you did before you got in there. Then why even set you up like that? Like to me, that seems that you're setting somebody up for false hope because what you just said was they're saying, no, because of what you did to get there. We are not going to give you a break. It doesn't matter what you do. So why put you through that whole I exercise? Have parole. <laughs> why? why do, but still, why do that? And you and your family, to me, that seems so cool to do that to somebody. So I get what you're saying. It's okay. This is where you are now. These are the things that we expect of you. And also, I would think that it gives you a little bit of control because I would guess that one of the things that's so different, look, out here, still, I've learned that we have so little control over so much in our life. It's really sure. out of our control, but there are some things that we do have control over. But when you go into prison, I would assume you don't control much of anything. So at least having a little bit of something, uh, a goal to work at, to feel like you have some kind of control, that's just got to be good for human beings just in general. Absolutely. Right? So like, I, yeah. Motivation. And that's so many people you get that mentality. They're not going to let me go anyway. And then you become angry. You become, it just causes so much more difficulties for prison staff that, yeah, bad situation. When you went in, I don't want to take you necessarily back to that first day, but was it what you expected, what you had seen on TV and in movies? Was it completely unexpected? Could you have prepared yourself at all for what was going to happen? So. When I was in the county jail, I asked a thousand and one questions of everybody that had ever been to prison. I felt like I was prepared. I felt like I had studied for this test and that I would be fine. And walking into it, 
I was absolutely not prepared for it. You're not prepared emotionally to be treated and seen as a number. You can't prepare yourself for that. For prison staff to look through you, for your word to mean nothing. No, no. And even just the, without getting into too much detail of the first intake strip search, it's not just getting naked in front of somebody. It's a, it's very intrusive. Invasive. And yeah, absolutely. You can't prepare for that. But I know you've also mentioned that you're not, you were never really a fighter, but you would have to sometimes defend yourself in certain situations. So is it a scary, let's say, is there as much violence? Do you have to find that tough side of yourself to survive situations that you never thought you'd be in before? So I think that's based on personality. So if you mm-hmm. have a personality that can easily stay to yourself, that can easily not speak on things that you know are wrong, and lots of people have that, that's a good thing character trait to get you through incarceration. I don't have that, Marcy. I'm outspoken. It's if I see something out here that I think is wrong, I speak on it. If Mm -hmm. I see something in there. And so that's what I put myself in situations where I led it led to violence. Absolutely. So did you learn, okay, this isn't going to work for me here. Life is very different here. Did you find yourself having to kind of change? your ways to get through. I learned to fight just basically. And then once you get in a few fights and people realize you're, and I'll just use some prison slang, you're about that life. When they realize you're about that life, you don't have to as much because you have already. Do you build friendships? Were you in a cell with several people, one person? How does that work? So the housing situation on the unit where I was, there's a couple different types of housing situations and I've lived in them all. I was there long enough. So in a cell, yes, you have one roommate in a cell or you can be in an open dorm where you're like in a single man cubicle. The cubicles are like desk height. So the walls are like desk height. So you're really with everybody. You're sitting on your bunk and you can talk to the lady next to you. It's not private at all. And absolutely you make friends just like any other. People ask me that often. Can you make friends? Is it okay to make friends? Absolutely. Just like school, work, or any other social place, church, wherever you go, where there's people and you interact with them, you're going to start talking to people and notice who is like-minded and that's who you're going to hang out with and talk with and bond with. Absolutely. Some of my best friends are still incarcerated. Right. Yeah, I would think so because you were there long enough to actually make deep friendship. And who else is going to understand your experience more than somebody who's lived it? Because I think like anything people experience, you can read about it all you want. You can watch as many videos or movies about it, but unless you've lived it, there's got to be that connection there for people who have a shared experience. During this time, how often were you able to speak with your family? I probably got a visit once a month because from different family members, maybe my parents one time or my kids one time, my grandparents, I did have the phone call set up. So I'll say that privilege happens in the free world. And privilege happens in prison and it's all about finances. So I was fortunate enough that I had family that was financially taking care of me and could Mm. financially afford 
these expensive phone calls. So I was able to call home several times a week and I was able to communicate with my kids through phone calls. Lots of inmates don't have that privilege. And how was that with your kids? Were they, I don't even know how to. Yeah. Because they were the little ones that probably didn't really understand. No, they didn't. They didn't really know even where they were visiting. They didn't even understand until I think Annabelle was about five years old. And I called home and she got on the phone and she said, mom, where are you? And I said, I'm where you come to visit me. And she said, oh, and I said, it's, I'm not in the room where we visit. I'm in my dorm room. And I described it to her. I told her about all the ladies and the TVs. And she said, oh, I thought you might be in jail. Huh? And it just was like her first realization. And I said, baby, I am. I'm in a kind of like a jail and it's called prison and it is jail. And then we had to have that conversation broken down for a five-year-old that I took things that didn't belong to me. And the older ones for sure knew that you had messed up, that you had done a bad thing and you had admitted it. And now you were in a very long time. Absolutely. Yeah. And my older kids, middle school age, that's already such a hard age. They're trying to figure out who they are, what they believe in. And it was horribly traumatic for them for that to happen because they weren't being raised to think that was okay. It was just, it was awful. I didn't communicate very well with them. I think I thought that their dad was keeping them updated on what was going on. And it was hard. Our relationships suffered terribly. One of my sons, we didn't speak for several years while I was incarcerated. He just had so much anger and we're all healing from that now. And I'm so grateful that we're having our relationship and we're rebuilding that bond. And he tells me now he doesn't feel that anger anymore and that resentment. And I'm grateful that they'll talk to me about it, but it was horribly traumatic. I would imagine, but I also think, I think with anything, as our kids get older, as we get older, the more we understand our parents in every situation, the more we understand life. And I think they'll probably have questions, all of them, different ages at different times when they come to different realizations and go, they'll understand something more and be ready maybe to ask different questions. So this is probably going to be a lifelong thing, but how great is it that, that you are so open about it, all of you, and that you're not rushing it? Was there anything when you went in that you thought you were going to really miss that you couldn't live without, that you found that you were fine? And then the other side of that, anything that you didn't think was such a big deal that you realized, oh God, I really missed whatever. There was so many of those little moments in prison where I was like, oh my gosh, just even walking outside when you want to, but even just like you're never barefoot because you're barefoot in your own cell or your own cubicle, the feel of carpet under your feet or grass outside, that for sure. Stars, you don't see stars yeah. at all. Prisons are lit up football arenas or football stadiums. Yeah, they're lit up for security. You don't see stars at all. How often did you get outside? So the way the unit that I was on was set up is it there's a main street. It's called Main Street and it is it's a road and there's buildings on either side of the road. Now there's two chain link with razor wire perimeter fences around all of that. There's a laundry building, a chow hall building, a chapel building, and then several different dorm buildings. So you have to go out of your dorm to go to chow. You have to go out of your dorm to go to work or school 
or church or whatever. You can go out several times a day, but it's just walking to from. And then anything that, that you thought you missed that you didn't really, or that you found easy to go without? Food, for sure. Like the first five years, any jail or prison, I think that you go to and their TV's on and any kind of food commercial comes on. Everybody's just, <laughs> and but once that, I don't know, I got to a point sometime that that wasn't an issue. And when I got home, I wasn't excited about food. Everybody asked me, what was your first meal? What was your first right. meal? And of course, I've gained a lot of weight since I got home. So don't <laughs> let me act like I don't eat because I definitely eat. But I just, there's not that excitement or like that. Oh, I need this. That's interesting. What was the food like? I want to say like the worst lunch lady from school, the worst meal there was probably the best we had in prison. Uh The food that they serve is, it's not good. I always feel bad because one of the kitchen bosses was a really nice officer and she's changed careers now, but she follows me on social media. And anytime I say anything about the food, she'll put a comment like, I did the best I can. And I'm like, <laughs> I know you did, but their budget is horrible. I'm sure they didn't have best products to, right. to work with. But on that topic, I have to say some of your best, funniest, I would say the most entertaining of your videos are your hacks, your prison hacks, the things that you, anything that you were missing, you had to be creative and you created them yourself. And I, and okay, for everything when it comes to food, because I am so into food and I can't cook, so I never would have lasted, but everything from cheesecake to chocolate cake to my favorite, which was pizza, which has got to be a fan favorite. If you could just <laughs> list the ingredients that goes into a prison pizza that you made. So a prison pizza would be saltine crackers or bread and then ketchup (laughs) or V8 juice and then squeezed cheese, garlic powder, onion powder, cut up turkey bites, maybe cut up spam, cream cheese if you wanted, ranch after it's done if you wanted. And you make it and it looks pretty decent. How do you figure that out how do you like share recipes on the what how do you figure out how to how to make all you made make all the things that you made how do you learn that just like out here any little thing gets passed down from generations and that's how it happens in there so I might be having trouble with something and somebody walked by and was like look at this or I might be having trouble with something and figure it out and then share it and we just pass it on to each other and the recipes just get passed down or as commissary gets new ingredients, somebody's like, oh, look, we have this now. We can make this. And, and it just spreads like wildfire. And you continue to make some of those recipes? Will you be taking some of those with you that you make well, outside? I make a lot for videos. Yeah. And that, sometimes I laugh at myself because I never in my wildest dreams while I was incarcerated believed that anyone would care to watch me making a prison pizza pocket but people are really interested which I love so I laugh at myself you'll see me in several of those kind of videos just giggling because it amuses me so much but I'll say I make the cookie cakes because my grandkids are vegan and those are vegan and they adore them and so I will still make a cookie cake easily or cake balls made out of those cookies and they love it but other than that We eat everything I make for videos and my girlfriend's always, she's an excited eater and she's funny. I'll say, hey, I'm going to make a 
such and such a tamale video and she's oh we're having tamales prison tamales and she's just but I don't make them outside of those videos. no it's funny because I'm picturing as you're talking I'm picturing you making like the cake or the balls for your grandkids right but then that becomes a passed down recipe and then it'll be like oh great grandmother (laughs) Marcy's recipe from prison and you can have a whole cookbook I'm sure when you were doing it you never thought oh I'm gonna go out and this is gonna be a hit on TikTok you didn't even know what TikTok Oh, <laughs> was. But wow, we can't have any idea what the hell life is going to have in front of us. We just have no idea. You mentioned before that you go outside when you go to work. How did work? <laughs> How did that work? I worked outside most of the time. I worked in the field squad, which is like exactly what it sounds like working in the fields, hauling hay, picking corn, picking potatoes, very much labor kind of work. And it's like those old movies, the chain gang, you see officers on horseback that are armed with their cowboy hats on and they're monitoring us and yelling at us and not being very nice to us. And we're working. You get to pick what kind of job? How do they choose what you're going to do? When you get to the unit, you go in front of a unit classification committee, three people and They say, you look pretty healthy. We're going to put you on the field squad or kitchen or wherever. Is it again, like you see on TV, where you buy stuff in jail? Is there stuff that you use instead of money to get stuff? How does that work? Absolutely. That's that's flags, Marcy. Flags. That's our money. (laughs) Flags, Flags is a postage stamp because our postage stamps have the American flag on them. And so if somebody wants something, hey, can you wash my clothes because I have to work? And sure, okay, I'll give you three flags to wash my set. Or people do all kinds of businesses in there. They have hair businesses. I cut people's hair. Wow. (laughs) This hair for 10 flags a haircut. And I use toenail clippers to cut their hair. (laughs) Really? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so then you eventually did get parole. Yes. So how did, how do you get to a point where you're like, how do you even believe that's going to happen? Because at that point you must've been like, don't even, I can't even. Well, after, when, after my meltdown, you know, in the middle of my sentence there, when I kind of came out of that and where I just wasn't getting in any trouble, because all of a sudden during my meltdown, I'm getting in all this trouble. I'm making all of these horrible decisions. And now I'm getting all these disciplinary cases. And so now parole has a real reason. Not the first Uh, four or five times they said no, but now they're saying no because I'm acting like a complete crazy person. I'm not suitable to go to the free world, honestly. And so once I came out of that, about a year went by and I hadn't been in trouble and I had been, had a peace about me. I felt like maybe it's time now. I was surprised, but I also wasn't as surprised as I thought I might be. So how much time did you spend in total in prison? You didn't get to go home right away. No, I had a six month in prison program. That was my parole answer. So then I waited two months to pull chain to that program. And then I had to go to a halfway house. So it was like a, almost a full year after I made parole. I made parole right before my 10 year mark and then came home like 10 or 11 months later, I guess, 11 months later. So here's a question. I would think that there are a lot of women who are incarcerated, who come from, not everyone, but who come from 
abusive situations, who come from addiction situations, who come from situations where they did things that were situational, that maybe had they not been in a certain situation, they wouldn't be there. And my question is, before they let you out, before there's parole, is there any help? Is there counseling? Is there a way to prepare people so that they don't get out and have just not because they're bad people, because they just don't know how to do anything different? Is there any kind of education or support that they get? Marcy, and let me say that you said some, and I will say most. Easily, that's the case for most. I am somebody that absolutely knew better and absolutely had a thousand other options, even had I needed the money. And most, that is not the case. And no, that is, there is not help. There's not help for that. There are small organizations, small nonprofits here and there sporadically, but it is nothing that our country is doing. There's nothing the state of Texas is doing to help that reentry or change of scenario. No, so it's, an, it's outside organizations that see a need and that and try to come in. So it's a punishment. It's right. not rehabilitation. It's we are Absolutely. going to punish you for doing bad things, not we are going to try and support you and educate you and give you the support you need to then change. To say there's a problem with that is, is really diminishing the whole yes. issue, but that's yes. got to be incredibly infuriating. It's heart-wrenching. And I don't think I realized that, and this is just me, middle-class me coming from now, my parents were hippies. They're a love everybody, open-minded. And even coming from that, the idea planted in my head that bad people are in prison. Okay. So then I get to prison and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, no, these are not bad people. These are broken people. These are people that didn't have a chance from the start. And conversation after conversation with my mom about different ladies in there. Mom, she's here because she was seven years old and her parents were selling her for dope. Or and she's here right. because she was manufacturing and delivering with her brother when she was 15. This is the reality of the situation. And we're not doing anything to change that reality. Of course, that's why our country has the highest recidivism rate. We're not doing anything to change that. What? And I heard you talk also about the guards, like you learned really quickly that you couldn't say no, that you couldn't have an opinion, that they weren't friendly. It was a huge uh, superiority thing. It was, again, the whole control thing, but there was no chance of having any kind of pushback on your end. But they said was the law. Yeah, there was no negotiating, even when you knew they were wrong or even when you knew they were not going by policy, your word means nothing. You have no power from it within those walls. Now, when you did get out, the world changed because it changes. Even if we're living in the outside world, it changes sure. every six months. So was there a way of keeping informed when you were there? I'm sure there would be internet, so many things. When did you get out? So I got out last year in January. I went to the halfway house in March. I went home. Wow. Second Christmas home. (laughs) Wow. So what were some of the biggest surprises when you came out? Random things like this pay to touch, these using your cell phone to pay. Social media was out of control. When I got incarcerated, MySpace was still going. Facebook (laughs) started. And so I was just shocked with the social media. Then I remember just being in prison and 
people saying it's bad out here as far as our politics, as far mm. as the mass shootings here. Mm. But when you're in there, you're dissociated from all of that. And so when I came home and started experiencing that, Ooh. that that kind of hit heavy. You're in this place where it's supposed to be housing all the bad people. And then you get out and there's, it feels to me, there's so many bad people out here. Less so safe. That, yeah. In very many aspects, it feels less safe out here than it did in there. Wow. That's something. One thing that I want to ask you about is, as I said, when you went in, you were married. Yes. I believe it was your second husband. And then when you came out, you were divorced with a girlfriend. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I've seen your videos and you're still together. Yes. Um, so how do, okay. But I've also heard you say to try to avoid relationships in prison. So how did that work? <laughs> and Marcy, that's still my advice is if you have to go to prison for something, I pray that you don't, but if something happens and you end up going, the best way to stay out of any drama or BS or to stay out of the limelight from the guard is to not be in a relationship. That's not how I did my time, <laughs> obviously. And it made it harder on me. And my girlfriend would give you the same advice. And you didn't ask it this way, but a lot of people just ask me, so did prison turn you gay? And that's not what happened. I was attracted to women before I went to prison, but I just happened to have married two men. I'm attracted still to both sexes. I think there's probably some kind of name that LGBTQ for me. I don't know what it is. I'm just, <laughs> I know I try to avoid I, all the labels. Just, I just am attracted to the person and that's how that goes. So I did meet Brittany. We've been together since 2017. We didn't really expect for it to happen out here the way that it has. I think just statistically relationships from prison don't carry over into the free world, but I'm just happy to have her in my life. It's just, and you got out around the same time. She got out right eight months before me. We saw parole. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we That's actually, luck. Imagine yes, that. Yes. Cool. Yeah. It, it makes it more difficult. Like you're on the guard's radar. Is it that they're making sure that there's nothing going on that you're not well, like, right. So there's actually a rule in the rule book that says you cannot enter into a relationship with another inmate. There's a no touching rule. There was an older lady that was sitting down in her cubicle crying and I hugged the top of her shoulders and didn't mm. even stop and say anything because she was just in her moment. But I just was like outwardly support mm. and that I got the camera saw it. I got disciplinary action for that. Yeah, it's no touch. It's making me think about the last few years that we've had with COVID and how so many people suffered from just that, like not being able to hug and to touch. And to think of going somewhere for 10 years or longer, people who are in there for longer, and can have that, just that connection. And again, we're not talking about sex. We're talking about a hug. We're talking about just putting your hand on someone else's right. hand. Even just rubbing someone's arm or shoulder like you do if someone's just going through something when you just, that's just, Human contact is a way that we support one another and that's taken away in there. And for sure that affects people's psyche. Absolutely. It does. So because of these rules, these type of rules, relationships in prison, when officers know that they know you're breaking rules, so many rules that right. come with that. You're not allowed to write notes to each other. All of that is so that puts you on the radar, even when you're otherwise completely behaving otherwise completely that they'll zoom in on that. There's kind of a, I don't know if it's a homophobia 
that happens, but I don't know if that's the right word, but it, it's that kind of feel like it's oh my God. against the rules. Wow. But what they're saying is, but they're okay. Even if they think that they're making it impossible to be human, they're just taking sure. the humanity out of things. You're housing a bunch of people together and then you're taking away everything that makes you feel like human beings and then expecting them to what? To just to obey the rules and then come out of it and be productive members of society. You're not allowed to share food. You're not allowed to share hygiene. So just like I talked about, here I am in prison and I came and not that I'm just this highly privileged, but I do know my race and I do know the finances. And even though it wasn't a lot of finances, it was more than most. Of course, when you're, you have somebody in there that doesn't have money to buy toothpaste and it's against the rules to give her toothpaste, but of course we do, you know, we do, but we're breaking the rules and the consequences for that can be disciplinary action. It can be that the officers take whatever you're passing. Yeah, absolutely. That happens. I remember hearing you say that you're supposed to get a certain amount. I think it was toothpaste that you were saying a certain amount. What is it every year? But how did that really work? Even for you who had, let's say, some privilege. Yeah, I bought toothpaste from commissary because I had means to purchase that. But the policy says you get it every three months. But I only got it about five times the whole time I was there from the state. So definitely that's not what's happening. <laughs> and deodorant, never. Shampoo, never. That's not really. Right. That's not something that the state of Texas issues their inmates. No shampoo. Just little. If you don't have anyone on the outside helping you, you're shit out of luck. That's right. I'm going to show you. I have it right here. This is what they give you to wash your hair with and your body. Wow. That's a tiny that's a little. It's mm-hmm. like a tiny little square of something. Jeez. Yeah. And how long is that supposed to last? So you're supposed to get one for every day. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. Just to go back a little bit, I didn't even realize that like, you were there during COVID. Yes. That must have been. That was hell. scary. That was so scary in the beginning. People started getting sick and they didn't really know it was COVID. And people, they were like taking people to SEG and then bringing them back a few days later and they were still sick. That's how it started. I believe our unit had some of the earliest cases. Our unit housed 100 women, and we had the largest amount of COVID cases percentage-wise in Texas. It hit us pretty hard. So the way that was is we see news, and of course, we have contact with family members. And so we're kind of hearing about a thing going on in other countries. And then we hear about, oh, there's some cases here, but we're disassociated from it. We're in our own world. So it's not affecting us. Like if you're in Canada and you hear something that happens in Texas, you hear about it and you're like, oh gosh, but it doesn't directly affect Mm -hmm. your life. So it, and that's how it was. But then they started taking people, they cleared out a dorm, but they weren't telling us anything. And they started taking people to that dorm. We just didn't know. We didn't, we're like, what's going on? And then one day the officers came in and you know, that scene in ET when all the people are in full equipment. That's how they came in dressed and they locked us down. No phone calls. We couldn't leave our, where our bed was. So if you're in a dorm, you had to stay in your cubicle. If you're in your cell, you're locked in your cell, no communication with the outside. And then the guards walk in with all of this equipment. All of a sudden that's how they're handling us. And I thought it was, it could have been the end of the world for all we knew. And we had those fears for sure. So it was crazy. And then as it went on, 
we were locked down for months and we were fed very poorly mm. because the inmates are who run the kitchen and the inmates are who run the unit. So now all of a sudden they can't do that because we're all locked down. So yeah, it was rough. So how did it work? So what would it um, be here? So there was another unit that didn't have any mm. cases of COVID that was close to us. And so they were making our um, sack meals. We call it a Johnny. They were making our Johnnies and they were coming and throwing them over. <laughs> they weren't even getting out of their vehicle when they would drop them off to our unit. And so they were like hastily making those with, it was just, guess as a nation, we had a food shortage. And so then mm -hmm. that affected prisons also. And then now we're pulling from another prison's resources and mm -hmm. it was rough. Yeah, it was rough. So then when you find out you're getting out and you've done your time at the halfway house in that program, oh God, I can't even imagine that day. Who came to get you or how did you get home? Where did you go first? That was my, there was a debate on who was going to come because I was just blessed to have such a good support. And mm. so I was kind of worried, like, how's it going to work? Because I have five kids and there's only so many people that can fit in one car. And it was, mm. I was like four hours from home. So it was a, a trip. Oh, wow. Then my oldest daughter was just like, mom, the girls, my younger two are girls. The girls need to come. I don't know who's mm -hmm. coming to get you, but we just need to make sure the girls come. How old were they at the time? They, mm -hmm. when I home, they were in middle school. Were they 11 and 12? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, so they were babies, babies. Yes. They were wow. in diapers, but they were eight months old in a year. So, yeah. I can't even imagine what those hugs felt like. Like you just must have never wanted to let go. It was so much. Yes. It was such an emotional so there was 12 of us that got released that morning. And so there were 12 families outside in like a lined up parking spaces. And so it was just the whole energy. It was massive. The energy and excitement and emotions were off the chain. But yeah, my girls ran right up to me and they were just holding on tight, both of them at once. It was really good. My parents brought them and my younger brother was there. He's bigger than me, but younger. I just, it's even as a parent, I'm thinking true. Like I wasn't even thinking as your parent, that must have been really tough for them to see you go away for that long. But then oh. to have you back, I mean, now I could think your mom just was probably <laughs> never going to let you out of her sight. I would imagine also uh, still probably anyone who's been through, because that's traumatic and anyone who's been through any kind of trauma, I know for myself, there must be still, I would think highs and lows and you get hit with just emotions and memories and feelings. It's a lot. It's a lot to process, right? And it's going to be a while for you to even process that. Oh, I think so too. And I can see that in my entire family that they're taking it day by day. And sometimes even my brother, You'll see one of my videos. I didn't tell them about every bad thing that was happening there. I remember them coming to visit and me saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's the only hard part is being away from y'all. I'm okay. Mm. I just miss you guys. That's everything in here is just fine. There's good people. Yeah. And I did have good people, but it, yeah. I was not fine. I was never, I was surviving. I was never just good. I was never right. great. I was acting. And so then they watch some of these videos and I think so 
they're having to face some things that they didn't know. But it's important that people know. Yeah. That's why I think your videos are so impactful because you do have a really varied mix of the kind of fun stuff that people are curious about, like I said, like the food hacks and things like that. But then there's also, I saw, I have to tell you, I saw something today that you posted that really, oh, my heart, it was, somebody had asked, they said they were going into prison and they were really scared and they asked you for advice. And I just, my heart went out to them, but then even your advice, which like, you didn't say, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine. Right. What would you say? Share that advice. I would just say that don't speak on anything that doesn't have to do with you. Don't correct an officer. Don't get in a relationship. Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot. But I think you're doing such a great thing. And I think the reason why you're having such a huge impact and the reason why people are so drawn to you and they are, it's because you're doing it in a way that's really accessible. You're doing it in a way where you are telling the truth in a way that people can handle because people don't want to be uncomfortable, unfortunately. And I think you're dealing with an uncomfortable issue, but you do it in a way that's really inviting and that's off, even if it's a tough subject. And I think that's a huge credit to you. And I think you're doing a huge service. And I know that you've continued your advocacy and your activism. Do you want to share some of what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. We're just, I work with a few different organizations, but the main one is called Lioness and it is We are all justice impacted. We are all formerly incarcerated women, and we are fighting actively to better conditions for women's prisons in Texas. We interact with women that are incarcerated. We're getting feedback just from minor things all the way to big things. Also, I'm working with the Statewide Leadership Council and will be testifying in Austin when legislation needs to try to get several different bills passed. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, there's several things. TPCAs, the Texas Prison Community Advocates, and their main bill that they're trying to get passed is to get air conditioning in Texas prisons. They have a mock mm. cell, so I've got to go around and give people tours of the prison cell and put get in there and close the door with them. And um yeah, so I've got to speak at several colleges. It's been an interesting year. Nothing you could have expected. And not that's not long. Like when you think about it, you haven't been out that long and looked at the everything you're doing. That you you didn't give yourself much time to just chill. I spent a year honestly just working and communicating with my family. And then the year was up. It wasn't like I've been home a year, so now I'm ready. But I just came to a point where, oh, okay, I feel comfortable now. I feel right. Like I belong out here now. It took me a year for me to fully be okay to walk into a Walmart. And, and then that's when I started making phone calls. And I said, I, what can I do to help? And people were ready. People said, yeah, there's this organization and this organization. So I get to speak in a jail in Houston next month. And I'm so excited to go encourage those ladies and give them hope. I'm super excited about that. It's so mind blowing to me that you, when we first started and the first thing I said, but what did you like look like before? And it was very much just the typical average, not that there's typical average housewives and moms, that's a tough thing, but it was just kind of the way it was very traditional, let's say. And holy crap, did things somersault in so many ways, but it went from such a low to, my God, the stuff that you're doing and the stuff that you're involved with and the change that you're going to bring, who in a million years would have imagined 
there's a lot of power in that, which I am going to mention. I am going to mention that your story got the attention of one Rosie O'Donnell and your story is being turned into a series. Yes. Correct? Yes, that's correct. That's a big project we have going on. I'm so excited. And just the same way that you described the retelling of my videos, I think the show's going to have that same kind of vibe. It's going to be lighthearted and intense at the same time. She has some amazing writers and they're writers that worked on Will and Grace. And Mm. so I, I, and they're giving that same kind of vibe where like they're, Addressing some serious things in a lighthearted and entertaining way. I just think it's going to be great. That's amazing. And again, who would have thought? Yeah, she found me on TikTok. <laughs> Look at that. Never in a million years when you got out and you're like, what the hell is this thing? Did you think that this would be another thing to change your life? Well, right. I'm glad I found you. That's how I found you too. And yeah. we're going to put everything that you mentioned, all the organizations into the show notes. I feel like I was a bit shaken during this. Conversation. A lot of what you said really impacted me. I had the chills a bunch of times. I was overwhelmed a few times. I am appreciative that you took the time to speak with me. And I know I learned a lot. And I'm so grateful that you came on here and shared your story and hopefully educated people. And again, maybe made people who came in with some of the ideas of the stigmas attached to prison and maybe will do a little research and, or at least keep their minds open to what they do read and even, hey, support that they can, the organization. And I just, if I wanted to leave you with one thing, I would just hope people would be open-minded to realize people incarcerated, they're not bad people. They are just people like you and I that either got brought up on the wrong path, raised on the wrong path, or made a wrong decision. And that those things are redeemable. We can fix that. I always say too, it's not just bad people. Sometimes good people can do bad things. Absolutely. And they shouldn't, you shouldn't judge them. We're all so layered. There's so much more to us than one act. Absolutely. Thank you, Marcy, for talking with me. And good luck with everything. I'm excited to see what's coming. Yes. Thank you so much. Good speaking with you. You too. Take care. Okay. Bye now. Bye. Thanks everyone for listening. I'll see you next week. How to read your own reputation.